The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. So good morning and welcome to Berean Bible Church. Now the thing that's odd is that every it seems like almost every time that I'm set to speak and you know I'm given a few weeks to prepare and so I start working, it always seems that the week before or maybe the week before the week before, Dave will get up here and start preaching and he stumbles all right across my message. He's throwing out things. I'm like, oh, now maybe it's a God thing, but I don't know. It's irritating. I know. That's what he says. Hey, don't worry about it. People won't remember next week what I said last week. So it happens before the conference. It, ha- it just seems like, well, it happened last week, but um, fortunately... I mean, he started talking about the cross and sacrifice and propitiation and all these words. I'm like, shut up. (laughs) I just shook my head saying, oh, well, he did it again. (laughs) Fortunately, though, he didn't step too much on the toes of my message. uh, He just touched on some things. I'm like, at the end there, I'm just like, why did he go there? Just stop. Um, Anyway, today we're going to be looking at the topic of the cross. Now, we're going to be looking at it both as a symbol of the cross as well as the event that took place at the cross. First, we're going to start off looking at the typical symbol and how it's used. Now, the symbol of the cross is something that you see almost everywhere these days. Christians and non-Christians alike use it. The semi-superstitious people, it has become somewhat of a lucky charm of sorts. They have the cross around because they think it's, you know, some token piece that brings blessing. Others just use it as a fashion accessory. The common use of it, such a common use of it, means that most people use it with little to no real thought about what it means. From this pulpit, you get it a time, time and time again that context is king. Now, that not only applies to context of the verse within the surrounding verse's context, but it also applies to the time and culture context of the writers and the hearers in general. How did they, the hearers of the original Bible, how did they understand what was being said? In their culture, what did those terms and phrases mean? In their culture, what did this symbol mean? In the case of our topic today, we're talking the context of the first century, the Greco-Roman period in which the story of the New Testament took place. Now, the purpose of our study is to take a look at the cross as it was understood in that first century time frame. When it comes to the symbol of the cross, many people may be surprised to find that for at least the first two centuries of church history after Christ, the church did not use the common cross symbol very much in their iconography. It was really not until around the 4th century that the cross became more commonly used in relation to Christianity. But even then, the cross did not get used very frequent, as one might have expected it to. And then during the times of the Reformation in the 16th century, the common use of the cross in the church's iconology diminished in Protestant churches as they sought to move away from symbols that were being or could be used as a form of idolatry amongst the people. Even many modern Reformed congregations continue that tradition to this day and do not use symbols like crosses or statues or iconography in their worship services. As you may see, we don't have any of that here. While there are some modern congregations in that tradition who have left behind the conviction 
as the popularity of the cross has grown amongst Christians who desire to have it present in their worship service. So while the symbol of the cross itself is used by the world as a fashion statement, to the church it should be a symbol of the death and crucifixion of Christ. But even there, it is not always used properly or looked upon properly. So let's start by looking back at the cultural era surrounding the times of Christ. More specifically, as said, the Greco-Roman culture that surrounded the Hebrews of their time. And let's see if we can begin to peek into the thought process that brought forth the use of the cross into society. If we were to examine some of the great literary works of that time, we would see a bit of their view of the world around them, the views of deity, power, justice, and more. We find war, wrath, and battles among both men on earth, and at times we even see the gods who watched from on high coming down to interact with man. In this culture, both mankind and the gods were wrathful, vengeful beings. Stepping out of line often brought about swift judgment, usually ending in a display of wrath against the troublemaker. It is within this culture, filled with this concept of wrath and violence, that Christ was crucified and that the early Christians brought forth their message. The kind of extreme violence that was part of crucifixion and this culture in general is something that doubtfully anyone listening to me here has ever seen. We may see pale representations of it in movies and on TV shows, but can only imagine the horrors of what it must have been really like. Now, the intent of the act of crucifixion was twofold. First, yes, it was a means of putting someone to death. But secondly, it was extremely and deliberately brutal as it was designed to also degrade the person involved. It was the means by which the authorities kept the subjected people in line and squashed any thoughts of a spirit of resistance. It was meant to be so horrible, so cruel, and so demeaning that it would hopefully deter anyone from ever wanting to come face to face with that fate. It was considered by many to be the most horrific fate that was ever devised by men. In general, it was considered to be the lowest form of capital punishment, usually something brought against the lower people of a society like the slaves and rebels. It was not something that anyone would take pride in or would use the symbol of as a means of anything positive. Josephus referred to it as the most pitiful of deaths. The Roman order Cicero who lived in the century prior to Christ, referred to it as being the most cruel and terrifying penalty. The church father Origen, who lived almost 200 years after Christ, said crucifixion was the most shameful form of death, namely the cross. The cross, not only the symbol of it, but even just speaking about it generally was essentially a taboo topic of discussion in the polite society. N.T. Wright puts it like this, The point is often made but bears repetition. We in the modern West who wear jeweled crosses around our necks, stamp them on our Bibles and prayer books, and carry them in cheerful processions, need regularly to be reminded that the very word cross was a word you would most likely not use, not utter in polite society. Reports have it that if you were one who had witnessed a crucifixion, the very mention of it in a conversation would often turn your stomach and it was the cause of nightmares for many. The memories of men, half alive, covered in blood, enduring the cross often for many days before dying, covered in flies, 
nibbled on by rats, their flesh torn away, torn away by the pecking of crows, and all the while, friends and relatives come by to weep helplessly at the situation. Cicero went on to speak of crucifixion as not only an act, but the word itself as being something that should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. For it is not only the actual occurrence of these things or the endurance of them, but liability to them, the expectation, indeed the very mention of them, that is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. Crucifixion was meant to be the worst way to debase another human, to strip them of all dignity in life and in their death. For the followers of Christ, such a horrible experience was not only was not one that they would have immediately thought of occurring to the Messiah, that's for sure. But the mission of Jesus was to take him from on high in glory as part of the Godhead and bring him to the absolute lowest place that a human could go. This was only understood in hindsight as Paul apparently was able to grasp and display in Philippians chapter 2. N.T. Wright makes a brief mention of verse 8. In a way that kind of caught my attention when I was reading through what he said, it speaks of Christ humbling himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, as we read. But Wright points out that it's in the middle of the section of that verse where it shows a downward spiral from glory to death. Now that immediately made me think back to the message that I had given on chiasms back in August of 2015. As a brief recall to what that is, the chiasms are the literary method, and we find them throughout the Bible if you know what to look for. It's where a section of a passage is written in a pattern that emphasizes a central theme. One type of this is where a message starts on one step, proceeds a few steps to reach the central theme, spirals back out with repeating a correlating message that matches the earlier steps in the verses before the central theme. So as an example, and I gave this last time, you have Matthew 6.24, which can be broken down like this. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or, and then it spirals outward, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So as you can see, the A's match, the B's match. It's kind of an interesting little literary way that they did that. Well, I'm not sure if Philippians 2 in general is officially recognized as such a type of chiasm, but when he had mentioned that, I went back and looked at it and broke it down and started seeing that at least in verses 1 through 18, there was some correlation with the surrounding verses. But then when I took a focus on just the section of 5 through 11, which encompasses where 8 is, it became a little more clear. I see in verse 6, we find Christ not counting equality with God, which correlated with verse 10 through 11, with him being later exalted that every knee should bow. It said, have the mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he's shaking off, you know, basically his godliness. But then later it says, so that at the name of Jesus every name shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And then in the second step, verse 7, he empties himself to be a servant and a man. And then looking at verse 9, where he is highly exalted with the name above every name. So, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And then we got to the middle section, verse 8, where in human form he is being obedient to death, even death on the cross, the lowest of low types of death. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So that's the central theme, and then this, the verses around it kind of build into it and inspire a lot of it. So there's two points to be taken here. First, to die by crucifixion was the most horrible and repulsive way to die at the time. Secondly, when it came to gospel preaching, the cross is usually the key feature and not the resurrection as one might expect. Now, before we go on to, the, to that second point, let's take a look at the history of where crucifixions came from. While much of the history of it is lost, we do find the early historians Herodotus and Thucydides, who lived about 400 years prior to Christ, writing of the execution of people by hanging them on poles or trees. Now, it's not clear if that is by simply impaling people or if it indeed is a similar idea to the crucifixion. Some recent scholars have examined more evidence from ancient history and find that part of the key reason for crucifixion was so that the condemned would be able to see, feel, speak, and cry out in agony for days upon end. It was about the unending and extended pain and agony intentionally adding to the horror of crucifixion, as we had previously touched on. The ancient writer Seneca, who died in A.D. 65, describes it as an intentionally drawn-out, torturous event where the victim would be wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb, letting out his life drop by drop, fastened to this accursed tree, long, sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly tumors on chests and shoulders, and drawing the breath of life amid long, drawn-out agony. Some evidence reveals that during this time period, there were some groups who may have considered the crucifixion process to be so dark and surrounded by such bloodlust and horrific torture that these groups brought back the nails that were used during the crucifixions and incorporated them into magical or medicinal potions. To make matters worse, there are testimonies from people like Josephus who said that those people, the people who were actually there performing the crucifixions, had become, had seen it so often, had been, you know, frequently seen these horrors, that they eventually became hardened and numb to it. So the gruesomeness in the whole process had kind of, you know, been lost on them. They've just become used to it. Therefore, in order for them to have a little fun and spice up their job life a little better, they would toy around with the mode and the position of the one being crucified, often making the torture at times even worse. It was only a handful of years before the birth of Christ when Galilee experienced an attempt at a serious revolt after the death of Herod the Great. The rebellion was put down with the brutal destruction of around 2,000 rebels by crucifixion. So Jesus and all of his contemporaries grew up in the shadow of such a recent mass crucifixion event. Therefore, it would have been fresh in the minds of the people at that time. The freshness of this large event, along with the typical amount of crucifixions that occurred in any given year, means that the people in general would not be able to hear the word cross without being reminded of somebody, maybe someone they knew or loved, being shamed and tortured that way. So when Christ told his followers to take up their crosses and follow him, They would not have taken it as lightly as we may read it today, and they would not have considered it simply a metaphor. Add to the fact that he follows it up with speaking of life and death, and it drives the point home because the cross meant death in that culture. He said, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then when we consider that during the Jewish War of A.D. 67 through 70, 
Many of you already know the story of how the Romans crucified so many Jews outside the city that they ran out of timber locally to make any more crucifixion crosses for crucifixion. It was that many along the roadside. When Jesus was crucified historically, almost right in the middle of these two large mass crucifixion events, his followers during that first century would have not taken the symbol of meaning of the cross very lightly. Not only was a cross used to shame and kill offenders, it was also used to mock and even parody a political movement of people. When a leader of a political group tried to cause a problem and raise himself up in power and position, the response would be, you want to be raised up? So be it. Raise him up on the cross. They would put them down. When Emperor Galba condemned a Roman citizen to crucifixion, something that was not done because the Romans were above the people, this citizen objected because he was a citizen. Crucifixions were for the low lives of society. So Galba said to make his cross higher than the others and paint it white to represent his higher social status as a Roman citizen. This type of ridicule is what they play, is, is seen when they place a sign over Jesus with the words, King of the Jews. This was a stab not only at Jesus, but particularly at the Jews in general, as they were considered a lower-class people in the minds of the powers in charge. This was the world of wrath and death in which Christ entered. The cross had an understood meaning in society that Rome was superior, and everyone else was vastly inferior. The cross also had a political meaning that Rome was in charge and no one else's nation counted. It likewise had a religious meaning, for it meant that Rome's gods were vastly superior to any and all local gods. This all adds to the scenario when we understand that Christ comes onto the scene claiming to be God, claiming to have a kingdom, and being given a name above every name. To an outside hearer, blinded by the true meanings of Christ's words spiritually, this sounded like rebellion deserving of death. This message so infuriated the Jews that they used the local system of wrath to their advantage, provoking Rome to ultimately send Christ to the cross. To them, this problem was now solved. Sadly for them, that is not the end of the story as we know. Of course, we know this crucifixion and debasement of Jesus was all part of the plan, for Christ was sent to die to be a propitiation for the sins of his people. Propitiation, one of those big theological terms that David used last week and that we also heard this morning for those of us here in our prayer meeting. It is the term that means the action basically of appeasing a God. Christ died to reconcile his people and restore communion with Yahweh by being a propitiation for us. But this concept of dying for someone else, where does it come from? Those of us reading it in hindsight, we know it mainly from growing up and hearing the gospel message. It becomes pretty familiar to us. But what would first century people think of the concept of someone sacrificing their life for someone else? The Jews, of course, understood the concept of blood and sacrifice as a means of atonement. But with animals, not humans. That's a totally different concept. When you talk of a man, the idea of a man dying for someone as a way to appease a god. The concept of that, though, is found more clearly in ancient pagan literature than it is in the ancient Jewish literature. The idea of someone dying for someone else was not too uncommon of a theme in Greek plays and fables. Ancient legends were often found having a central theme of someone sacrificing themselves or maybe even a very close loved one in order to appease the gods. Of course, now as I think about this, all I can think of is, you know, all the stories we hear of people sacrificing their daughters to dragons, you know, that they looked at as gods. So anyway, my mind went to dragons. But, and maybe they did too, who knows? 
Um, anyway, this was part of the pagan culture at the time. And so when Christ claimed to offer himself for the sins of his people, some of them would have understood that concept who were familiar with these themes. And it may indeed be that this cultural understanding, especially among the Greeks who were converted to Christianity, would have helped immensely to more quickly shape and create their early thoughts in regard to a significant view of the cross and the work of sacrifice that took place there. Many of the perceptive Jews of the day realized that they were the critical generation for receiving the relief from exile and bondage. They knew the 70 weeks of Daniel were coming to an end in their time, and they knew that it meant a chosen one was coming to free them from bondage and sin. Some expected a Messiah, others maybe just a strong political leader to lead them on to freedom. As I discussed a little more in detail last year my message on rethinking Jesus, I won't go into it here, but there was some, some thoughts within ancient Hebrew writings and thought of the idea of a coming chosen one having to suffer and possibly even die. Sadly, by the time of Jesus, that concept was not as predominantly held by the religious leaders in power, and so the significance of the work of Christ was often missed. Unfortunately, they failed to see and understand what was happening before them. They celebrated the Day of Atonement ceremony, the Day of Atonement ceremony annually, as well as the Passover ceremony, both of which pointed towards sacrifice and reconciliation. Yet they failed to understand the shadow that those ceremonies were of the great work of the chosen one standing before them. They failed to see the coming sacrifice of Isaiah 53 as referring to the Holy One and instead saw that as their nation's suffering. Some sects of the Jews would have thought it insane to even consider the idea of a suffering Messiah, much less a crucified one. So the idea of the cross was a stumbling block to them, as Paul said. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. To many of the Jews, they, would not, they could not grasp the teaching of the apostles when they preached that the chosen Messiah had died, much less that he had died on the cross, the lowest and cursed manner of death. Likewise, while the concept of human sacrifice may be more easily grasped by the Greeks from their stories, such a concept of any type of supposed Savior dying this low death on the cross would have been seen as a failure and foolishness to the Greeks. Because of this low and horrid view of the cross, how much more advantageous would it have been for the early church to have actually tweaked their message a bit to essentially gloss over the actual death and cross aspect and instead focus and highlight more on the resurrection life and the conquering of sin and death aspect? The fact that they did not go that route but instead chose to embrace the, des the despising idea of death and the cross and focus on it in their message shows just how powerful Yahweh made the message that while it was foolishness to the most, to most, it was still the means of salvation to others. On the other hand, there is evidence that some groups, even some who profess being followers of Jesus, did change the message in such a manner. For when you view the message of the Gnostic Gospels, you can see that that's just sort of the message they have there. The cross is often not the central point, and instead they have a reimagined non-bodily resurrection and transformation that is the focus of their message. Instead of a God-man who came teaching truth and who died a gruesome death on the cross as a sacrifice and propitiation for the people, Jesus is made out to be a cryptic teacher of wisdom. This is directly opposed to the true gospel account where the cross is central. For the true church that came out of all of that, for the first few centuries of history, the cross was not an embarrassment that was sought to be softened and swept under the carpet 
It was the mysterious key to the meaning of life, God, the world, and human destiny. We find the cross made a central object in early Christian writings from the biblical text through to today. However, few in the early church have ever sought to really make any hard and concrete theological doctrines to try to fully define how the cross does what it does, or to grasp, or because our grasp of the true significance of it all is just a pale understanding at best. In the earliest of creeds, the working of the cross was not expounded on very much at all. The Apostles' Creed gives no details as to what the cross accomplished or how it did anything. It simply states, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The Athanasius Creed is even more condensed and likewise has no explanation or expounding on what theologically happened at the cross. It simply states that it was Christ who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead. The Nicene Creed was likewise short and sweet, stating similarly of Christ, he suffered and the third day rose again, ascended into heaven. A few decades later, it was expounded upon in Constantinople. They added some extra thoughts, though still not much detail, stating he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. Now since around the time of the Reformation and onward, theologians have debated and discussed and examined and they have attempted to explain, trying to get to the microscopically small details of understanding various passages in hopes of explaining how and what exactly transpired at the cross. They create large and detailed schemes full of deep theological terms that people get lost in. It is at this time that we start seeing the creeds having more expanded thoughts on the atonement, cross, and the related themes. Whereas in the early church of the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries, they spent more time discussing the questions of God, Jesus, the Spirit, and Trinitarian thought, and less on digging into the cross. The Reformation and following times dealt in more detail on that topic. And then on the other extreme, there is the average pew-sitter who is content to believe that as long as God loves them, nothing else really matters and needs nothing to be discussed or understood. And yes, while the love of God is an important concept, if they go no further, when they get eventually questioned or challenged by someone else, they have nothing that they can say in return to back up their beliefs. But while it is near impossible for us to really grasp the depth and the mystery and the wonders of all that was involved in the cross, We should not go in the opposite direction and think too lightly of it to the point where we trivialize and simply accessorize it as a symbol and as a doctrine. Where the cross was not spoken of in polite company in the past, it has now become thrown around to the extent where it is near meaningless even to Christians. Now, while I may disagree with the Roman Catholic use of the crucifix, there is a small part of me that would almost prefer it over the trivial, empty cross over how trivial the empty cross has become in our culture these days. The crucifix at least holds a small view of the horribleness of what took place on the cross and is a little less easily viewed so frivolously. Unlike the regular cross, it is a bit harder to look at it without bringing to mind the actual event and tortures of what it represents. Though even it has been trivialized at times to nothing more than an accessory, yet usually on a much smaller scale. 
The important thing that we as Christians must defend ourselves against is letting these things become too trivialized to us. We have to seek to not simply go through the motions, not become too comfortable and familiar with the symbols and ceremonies to where they become habit without thought or true meaning. When we see or talk of the cross, are we consciously thinking of the seriousness of all that comes with it? Do we bring to mind the pain and torture that occurred there or that would have immediately come to mind to the followers in Christ's time? When we see or discuss it, we should remember that Christ did, what Christ did through his work on the cross in order to restore his people to the Father. It should not be a trivial, accessorized icon that has no real meaning as in the case in the eyes of many who use it today. Now, this doesn't mean that every time we look upon it, we should have bloody, morbid thoughts. But the point is, we should have some kind of thought. The apostles and the early followers of Christ had thoughts of delight and gratitude, as we see Paul had in Galatians. He says, I had been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We can glory in the work that was done for us. We can proclaim with Paul about Christ, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Or ponder on the deep thoughts that must have been had by the writer of one of the most common verses used these days when we are told, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Surely the writing, the writing of this draws from upon a deep, and heartfelt understanding of what what occurred at the cross. God gave. God gave his son. God gave his son to die. And God gave his son to die on the cross. For the early church, there was a definite focal point made regarding the cross. As horrible as it was, it was often a key point, as I mentioned, even more so than the resurrection at times. For them and their preaching, they saw the cross as a central message, even though it was foolishness or maybe because it was foolishness. As Paul stated, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. The cross was a central part of the message, and to Paul it was something worth boasting in, as he said, Far But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. While it is the resurrection that is key to destroying the penalty of death from mankind, it is the cross that brought peace to strangers and foreigners. It brought the divisions of mankind into one body and reconciled them to Yahweh. As Paul states regarding the bringing in of the Gentiles to the covenants of God in Ephesians 2, as we read earlier, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood. I'm sorry, we read Philippians two. Um, brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Here is part of what needs to be given attention to by many modern Christians. Christians look at the cross 
as a symbol of what Christ did to us to get us to heaven. They make it individual and personal, relating more importantly to their ability to escape hell and get to heaven. But is that how the early church emphasized it? Last week, Dave preached on John 17 and showed some emphasis on Christ wanting us to be where he is and to see his glory. We see in 1724, as discussed last week, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be given to me where I am, who may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, if you go back and read the whole of that chapter, as we have done every week for the past couple of weeks, you'll note that the bulk of the prayer of Christ is about things like unity, that he, just as he and the Father are one, about keeping his followers from evil in the world, keeping them in truth in the world. And then only for a brief mention there do we find that, them, that he wants them to be where he is. As has been mentioned before from this pulpit, the Bible tells us little about the place that we refer to as heaven. Most of the verses people assume are about heaven are simply about the new covenant concept of a new heavens and a new earth. Heaven is still mostly a mystery, and the central purpose of the gospel message of the cross is to declare that something big has changed. The cross is a message of a new kingdom, a new leader, a new work, brought on by Yahweh. As a result of the cross, the world would become a different place. At the cross, things changed in the world. The cross was a central point of Yahweh's work, and the resurrection was an evidence of that work's reality. Throughout much of church history, the focus of preaching and writing tended to be about the effects of the gospel on the world, about redemption and the changes it brought. It wasn't really until about the 19th century that the focus of this message became more and more about the Christian going home to heaven. This is about the same time period that much of the church started turning to odd theological teachings that beforehand had never been heard of. And of course, we see the rise of many of what we call the cultic religions rose during this time. The message of the church became less about the mission of the world, to the world and more about the individual. As a result, Christians have become, as the saying goes, too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly good. The new heavens and earth, new earth reign of Christ became more about the Christian's life in heaven and escaping the earth's issues. Christians got less involved in worldly affairs and let the non-Christians take over in areas previously dominated by the Christians. The message of the cross has changed in understanding and in many ways has left the church more sterile in their influence on the world around us. If the church were to take the common concept of the Christian hope being about them going to heaven and instead replaced it with the biblical view of the new heavens and new earth, gospel mission, it would be greatly changing of the understanding and the application of the church and their mission today. Again, I pull up a quote from N.T. Wright. Now, he makes a statement which I think for the most part is very good, or at least it's heading in a good direction. I'm not real sure of his stance on the Hebrew concept of the divine council and the many gods and all that stuff, or the powers and the principalities, things along that line. But his quote here is still good, if you understood it like we do, but he uses the terms non-gods and idols And that gives me the impression that maybe he thinks the worship that's being offered to them are just being offered to imaginary beings, but I'm not sure if that's really his position. Either way, what he says is a good point. It's a fairly long quote, so hopefully you can follow and grasp his point. He says, 
In biblical terms, what stops us from being genuine humans, which he defines as a bearing, bearing the image, the divine image, or acting as a royal priesthood, that's being a genuine human. That the, uh, what stops us from being this genuine human is not only sin, but the idolatry that underlies it. The idols have gained power, the power humans ought to be exercising in God's world. Idolatrous humans have handed it over to them. What is required for God's new world and for renewed humans within it is for the power of the idols to be broken. Since sin, the, consequences, the consequence of idolatry is what keeps us humans enthralled to the non-gods of the world, dealing with sin has a more profound effect than simply releasing humans to go to heaven. It releases humans from the grip of idols so that they can worship the living God and be renewed according to his image. He's essentially saying that the cross brought about more than just a ticket to heaven. It brought about a new rule, a new kingdom, under a new authority, and that was a world changer. It was declaring there was a new sheriff in town and the removal of the old powers and a new freedom to the world that was not available before. It was declaring the power to make change, to escape sin, and to become sons of the living God unlike available before. It was about a new life, a new way of living, a new way of approaching the world and sin. It was not simply a ticket to escape this world and get to heaven. Initially, this plan was to be carried out by God's people of Israel. Abraham was chosen to ultimately be a blessing to the rest of the nations of the world. Those early nations who prior to Abraham had been divided by Yahweh at the Tower of Babel and were placed under these non-gods, as Wright puts it. Then Yahweh turns to choosing Abraham to be a new nation and through him to be a blessing to the rest of those previous nations. Ultimately, those chosen people fail to do their full duty, but through them is a promised chosen one who will accomplish the task. The chosen one is Christ, the true Israel of God, and he comes fulfilling all that Yahweh had promised from the promises to, Abraham, to Adam and Eve about their seed all the way through the promises of Abraham that his seed would be a blessing to all nations. Through the cross, God brought about reconciliation and a return of not only the dispersed ten tribes of Israel, but along with them the shunned nations from Babel that the ten tribes had intermingled with all of those years. This was a new type of life and relationship for mankind. This was a propitiation that restored a broken relationship between man and Yahweh. While the Jews of the day may have been hoping for a leader in more of a physical kingdom setting, with them on top reigning, of course, they missed the radical change that was happening in the world with the new spiritual rule of God among men. The purpose was to restore man to a position and vocation of image bearer to the world. Man's job was to be an image bearer reflecting the creator's image to the, into the world and through it reflecting the praises of all creation back to their maker. That is what it means to be a royal priesthood and stand as a representative of Yahweh between heaven and earth. <clears throat> when man fails to fill this position and instead offers the praise to other non-gods, it is an idolatry that separates man from Yahweh. It is something we see his people doing time and time again in Scripture. We find in Scripture that, pre that creation is presented and awfully understood as a kind of temple, a heaven and earth connection and representation. Within the early temple, man is the image bearer reflecting the life and love of heaven to mankind. 
This is how things were to be, but the people failed. The sin comes in when instead of being the image bearer of Yahweh to the world, men offer, offend the Creator, showing forth a false image of Him. When they turn and offer worship and authority to the forces and powers within creation, they are failing to perform their proper function, as we hear Paul speak of in Romans when he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. When humankind have served forces within creation instead of the Creator, it turns things upside down from the way that it was intended. Christ and the cross came and broke the bonds of those to whom men had given their authority. And with the bonds broken, men were restored to the ability to take back the power from them and become the image bearers in righteousness. Paul instructed the people of his time to continue the battle to tear down those strongholds and principalities by the power of Christ and the cross. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. With the foreign powers defeated, mankind is able to be restored to their position in this temple earth, to be the royal priesthood of Yahweh and the image bearers that represent God in this new heaven and new earth temple. This means that the message of the cross is simply is not simply that we go home to heaven, a discussion that's not really even made a point in Scripture when the gospel is presented. Instead, we find a message of new life, of a new vocation, as we find mentioned in the book of Revelation. Revelation 1, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And again in Revelation 5, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, your ransom people from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And then from Revelation 20, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The first two passages specifically mention how the cross The blood of Christ is a means by which man is freed from their sins and purchased as a new people by God, with no mention of heaven or escaping hell as so commonly thought today. But this was done so that they would become his treasured possession, his image bearer and priest within the new heavens and new earth, fulfilling the promise of Exodus, which says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, and all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Man was created in the divine image of 
in a divine image in Genesis. And he stood before God in the presence of the divine family until he chose to turn from God and give attention and authority to someone other than the Creator. Our priestly vocation now is to sum up the praises of creation before the Creator. And as a royal priest, we are to reflect God's wisdom and justice within the world we live. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, as we're told in 1 Peter. We are a new creation, living in a new heavens and a new earth, standing as a newly restored priesthood to declare and be the light and the image bearer of him to the world around us. This was the job of Israel of old, but it found its true fulfillment in Christ, the true Israel, under whom we are now Israel's priests. We no longer live to ourselves, but to him who sent, who went to the cross. As Paul elsewhere says, for the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him with who for their sake died and was raised. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Then note how he goes on. And three times after that, Paul basically reiterates the message of a new vocation for these new creatures in Christ. He goes on to say, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Galatians, Paul speaks again of the purpose of the cross. First, in 3.13, he states, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is, in, is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And then, in 14, he states the reason he became a curse to us. So that we might be freed from sin and be allowed to go to heaven? No. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul isn't emphasizing us going to heaven or even us escaping hell, but he is speaking of the promises to Abraham that his people, that, and his people that there would be a worldwide family and the cross inaugurated that into reality. Through the cross, there is a bringing back in of the nations that were previously shunned at Babel and to restore all types of men from all nations to a place in their new kingdom under Christ and Yahweh. As those in Christ, our new vocation is to be an image bearer of Yahweh in the world around us. We are not to just bide our time, keep to ourselves, keep our nose clean so that we can eventually die and go to heaven. We are to engage with the world, shine the light to the world, make the world a better place as an image of Yahweh. The cross opened the door for changes to our world, for a new kingdom, for a new king through Jesus, and for creating a new people, a new creation, a new image-bearer status that was lost in Adam. The death of Christ broke down the wall 
and started this revolution that has and is changing the world through us, his people, the priesthood of Yahweh. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to speak to us through it. Help us, Lord, to be proper image bearers to you and the world around us. Help us to stand firm in our faith, to stand firm in our testimony, and that we may speak your name in all that we do. We thank you so much for your word and all that it has granted to us. We just pray that you would bless us. Thank you for this. Amen. Thank you.